Hey everybody, welcome to the Kubernetes Unpacked podcast. And today I have two guests, James and Mark. They are both principal software engineers at Microsoft. And we're going to be talking about Windows containers on Kubernetes. James, if you want to go ahead, you can give a uh, brief introduction for yourself. Sure. Uh, I'm a software engineer on the Kubernetes upstream team at Microsoft. And uh, I'm also a tech lead in SIG Windows and have been working in the Kubernetes ecosystem for the last uh, four or five years. Awesome. Mark, how about yourself? Yeah, hi. My name is Mark Rossetti. I'm also um, on James's team on the Kubernetes upstream team at Microsoft. I've been at Microsoft for 14 years, um, done some various roles. I started off on the Hyper-V team, um, kind of changed a couple of teams and then ended up on the upstream team and got into the Kubernetes space when the previous SIG Windows co-chair, Patrick Lang, um, who I worked with before, kind of said, hey, do you want to do something interesting? And I said, yep. And uh, kind of one thing led to another. And now I'm currently the co-chair of SIG Windows. But I've got my hands on a lot of other places in the Kubernetes ecosystem. Awesome. Very cool. So uh, you guys are definitely the, the two folks to talk to for anything Windows Kubernetes specific <laughs> or Microsoft Kubernetes specific, rather. Cool. So, you know, one thing that uh, when, when we were kind of planning this whole session out that kind of came to mind was Nano. So, you know, however many years ago uh, when Nano was kind of first coming out, I remember playing around with it a lot, right? It was it was supposed to be the next generation for server core, right? Just a minimal version, so to speak. <clears throat> and then that kind of got like, I don't know if it's deprecated at this point. I don't know if it's still being worked on at this point. I don't think so. Uh, is, that, is that right? So yeah, there was a Windows Server SKU called Nano Server, um, and that's different than the Nano Server container images that um, people can use. Is that what we're talking about here? Or is that what uh, the Nano here? Server itself? Yeah, I actually did not know there were container images for that. So <laughs> oh, yeah, I believe that that's deprecated. Um, I don't remember exactly when that was introduced, and that was kind of introduced as a very you know lightweight Windows Server SKU with, um, but if I remember correctly, it came with a whole like suite of PowerShell functionality that you actually needed to customize your images um, after you deployed it to add all of the functionality that you wanted um, on top of it. I think it was a pretty novel idea, but we just really didn't see the adopt, like hardly any adoption with people. Um, I, I think that it was... I, I think it was just a little bit too much overhead for pe for customers to kind of configure their... Their, their servers and really understand what packages they need to add on top of the nano server skew in order to get the functionality they wanted. Um, so I believe that that is deprecated, um, but that actually did kind of turn into the Windows uh, server or nano server base Im container image, which is um, one of the two base images that Windows server container, well, I think there's more than two, Windows server containers can be based off of, and um, it is definitely the lighter one. So it kind of is spiritually living on. Awesome. Yeah, I, I remember Nano because, uh, you know, I, I just spent a lot of time just like Windows systems administration and stuff in general. And that was that was a big thing because, you know, I feel like there were probably a, a uh, good group of or a good amount of people that like really liked it because it was PowerShell heavy. And that's like a lot of what we were doing. Um, <clears throat> but now looking looking forward, it's kind of like with the various tools, with the various platforms, with the various ways of configuration, there can't just be one way to configure, you know, and I think that's, that's probably, in my opinion, one of the, the biggest things that was a, a, a larger gotcha there with Nano. But now we're, you know, obviously moving forward and there's a lot of things around Windows containers. So, you know, 
for me, I'm actually rather ignorant on the Windows container stuff because I don't do a lot in the Windows container space. So maybe, you know, you guys can give us a little bit of, you know, what's kind of happening in that realm right now. Um, are people adopting it? Do you see a lot of customers using Windows-based container images, all that fun stuff, and just, you know, obviously your opinions on it? Do you yeah, want to go, James? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, as far as like adoption goes, I think we, we are seeing a lot of folks use it. Um, we do have it in all the major clouds, I think, now. Um, and uh, in SIG Windows, we have a pretty active community uh, in uh, asking questions and helping install. Uh, we do see a lot of folks installing them online uh, or like in their um, on-prem in installations as well. Um, I, and I think for me, like the Windows containers um, in Kubernetes, so there's um, two aspects of uh, Kubernetes. There's the control plane that runs all of the system services and make sure your cluster's up and running and scheduling pods and those types of things. Uh, and then there's the workload uh, worker nodes. And that, the, that's where the Windows comes in. So we, we can adjoin a Windows worker node to the control plane. Uh, we don't currently support running the control plane on Windows or anything like that. So it's really just enabling that uh, scenario, like bringing your Windows workloads. Um, and I And there's like, three main scenarios that I see um, for, for customers. One's, you know, um, they have some 25, 30, 30 year old win Windows application that uses the system calls and, and, and just, it's just this big thing and it provides a lot of business value to the, to their um, business. And uh, they need to, they want to modernize it and move it over. And so they, this is a quick way to do that. Um, and oftentimes they also have the Linux teams contributing um, and been working on Kubernetes. And so they're trying to streamline the whole DevOps pipeline and get everything going in the same direction so they don't have to maintain multiple types of ways of deploying applications. Um, and then the, the one other app thing I see, uh, I've seen in the past is like, um, there's some customers who have hundreds of lines of business apps and you know, keeping and managing that and making sure they're all up and running can be challenging. And so, uh, you know, leveraging something like Kubernetes that kind of has that built in um, helps them move in that direction. Um, and so, yeah, we, we've seen quite a few different um, customers uh, from all, all all different types of uh, lines of business work uh, and, and run on Kubernetes. Got it. So uh, one thing that you brought up that I think is pretty important that we kind of all have to remember, right? Because technical marketing is very good at uh, telling us everybody's up to date and everybody's running the latest and greatest. And that's obviously not the case for a lot of businesses. Um, like you said, when you got a business that has an app that's 20 years old, it's obviously running .NET, right? It's not running .NET Core. Uh, you know, it's not in the it's not in that new realm, right? Of uh, of architecture. So is that kind of a lot what you see? Like when when you mention the old apps, is it more like you got the old .NET apps that they need to run on Microsoft or that they need to run on Windows rather. But at the same time, they want to be able to containerize. They want to be able to get ahead in terms of, you know, the new world of containerization, so to speak. Is that is that kind of what you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. So, and it's not just .NET. Like I think uh, I worked with one customer at Smallpox app that was integrated with C++ and .NET and it was all this one big thing. And um, they, they kind of looked at it and was like, you know, it's going to take a long time to be able to translate this into .NET Core. And, you know, whenever you do so something like that, you um, lose, there's quite a bit of business knowledge built up in there that you don't know about. 
and you could introduce various little bugs. And so the thing they, they decided to do is move it into a container, get it up there, and then build out new services in Kubernetes um, around it uh, and slowly kind of you know peel away those those parts of the application. Got it. Yep. One thing that I'll add is too, um, a lot of, we see a lot of people who have like these old apps and sometimes the reason why these apps are kind of so old is for compliance or regulatory reasons. So sometimes we've, we've seen it can take like six to 12 months for even simple changes to be kind of fully, you know, given a stamp of approval for compliance too. So sometimes these companies want to move to the cloud and they just can't afford to spend you know, a year of writing, rewriting these apps, and then another year or year recertifying for compliance and things like that. So with this, they're able to take the same applications most of the time, not even with, without even like recompiling them and just move them. And they've said that that's been very helpful. Got it. That totally makes sense. Now, th this actually uh, brings up two questions in my mind. Number one, do you guys think that with something like Azure Stack HCI, like that can come into play here in terms of creating that hybrid model. So for the, you know, the organizations that are running those older workloads that maybe they need to keep them in a data center for whatever reason, are they implementing something like Azure Stack HCI or are they implementing Windows Server, you know, spinning up Windows Admin Center, connecting AKS that way? Are, are you guys seeing that as well? I think we're seeing a, a mixture of both, but in I would say actually more often than not, if they don't need that on-prem footprint, we're seeing people just move straight to the cloud, um, picking their favorite you know cloud provider. And like, as James mentioned, almost all of the or or all the cloud providers now offer a way to join Windows uh, Server nodes or node pools to the um, to your cluster and kind of just off to the races that way. Got it. Very cool. And are you seeing like from an AKS perspective? Let's say you have a few different node pools. Uh, you know, maybe you got a bigger cluster, and you got some. You know, you got uh, some Ubuntu node pools. Uh, maybe you got some systems that are more GPU centric, more systems that are memory centric. Are you also seeing in that same cluster, you know, people throwing in Windows uh, worker nodes as well to manage their Windows containers? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's never just a. Um, I, I don't think very often we see just a standard Windows. Like you just have the control plane with a bunch of Windows nodes. Oftentimes you have a mix of those. Um, and that's because they have these complex applications that are running on both devices and interact that way. Um, but also, um, you know, there's a lot of really awesome tools out there in the ecosystem that work really well on Linux, um, like Prometheus and things like that, which can run on Windows, but um, is probably gonna be a better experience on Linux. And so they'll they'll kind of mix and match those those um components in a in a big cluster right that totally makes sense yeah so like if you if you have like a prometheus and grafana stack you you know deploy it on what the linux control or the linux control nodes the linux worker nodes and then at that point you can still ingest the metrics because they're going to be exposed regardless of if it's windows containers if it's not windows containers those metrics are still exposed they get fed into prometheus then you can actually see everything from an observability perspective so yeah i think that totally makes sense now this is a. Uh, uh, a perhaps a harder question. <laughs> I'm not sure, but is there is there a need or a um, how can I put it? Is there some type of like benefit for a newer application? Like, let's say you know it's a startup and they want to start diving right into Kubernetes. They're going to containerize everything right away. They don't want anything running on VMs as binaries, all that good stuff. 
why would they want to use Windows containers or would they not because maybe they're using, you know, .NET Core or whatever the case may be and they can run it on Linux containers? So I think it's kind of mixed and I would say it's honestly a lot uh, like up to whatever kind of wherever their experience lies. If they're already like a very strong like dot or like Linux heavy shop or everything's already on like .NET Core, which can run in Linux containers. Um, and the rest of like the ecosystem and the company is running on uh, Linux nodes. We generally see those people go straight to Linux. But we have seen a lot of people who are doing like net new development that have where they have some Windows like Windows workloads running and some experience on Windows, and they do tend to uh, keep Windows going up. Um, and this is kind of related to one other thing that I wanted to mention about why some people use Windows is one thing that um, I think not a lot of people know about, but is functionality that's been uh, generally available in Kubernetes for a while is we can actually run your Windows containers as uh, Active Directory domain users, like contexts. So there's a way to um, integrate with domain servers that are on the network um, and, and all of that and have everything just be authenticated and uh, controlled by Active Directory. And we've seen that be a huge, um, like when, when people do use that, it's very powerful. It makes it very easy to um, create, you know, just, just manage lots of different worker nodes and everything there. Um, so there's this uh, feature called group managed service accounts. And when you're deploying your containers via the pod specs, you can specify um, Active Directory group ma uh, managed service account in there. And the secrets are all stored in the Kubernetes cluster. So they're not the, the, the deployments. And we found that that's been very well received when people, when, when applicable. So people who are already doing lots of active directory type work, we just find that easy to integrate. That's funny. Uh, right before you started talking, I was thinking to myself, can you run Active Directory on containers? And that was the, <laughs> the next question I was going to ask. That's really cool. Now, do you see a lot of people doing that versus using something like Azure Active Directory? Because for me, at least, you know, I, I have a few clients that run on Azure, but I would say a lot are running on AWS. Um, and one of the things that I always recommend is like, listen, you need an OIDC solution, right? You need you need that standard, whatever you're going to choose. And I kind of always go towards that, even if you don't have Azure in your environment, implement it so you can take, uh, you know, Azure Active Directory's RBAC roles and permissions and everything and utilize them because you can utilize that stuff outside of Azure, right? So if you're running an AKS, or I'm sorry, if you're running an EKS, if you're running in GKE, you can still use Azure Active Directory. So do you see a lot of people going in that route or do you see a lot more people going in like the Azure, or I'm sorry, the Active Directory on containers route? I think, again, it depends. If they already have some on-prem footprint, then they'll usually do the Active Directory route and um, you know figure out how to link it up for completely cloud-based deployments. Um, some solution, like web-based solutions like Azure Active Directory are probably where people tend to, to go. Got it. That totally makes sense. And, you know, even like now that I'm thinking about this, because we're talking about the Active Directory containers, I even think there's the the piece that a lot of people typically forget, like in this in this just like the realm that we're in in general, is there are still offices. And in those offices, certain things still need to run with typical servers. So like, for example, print servers, right? Like if you're in an office, you're still going to have print servers. Can I uh, use a container for a print server? Yeah. Um, so there is a, um, there's, uh, Mark had mentioned the different types of Windows container servers. So there's the Nano, there's the standard Windows server, and then there's 
uh, or uh, sorry, server core. And then there's the standard Windows controller uh, container. And that container has the ability to connect to a print driver. Um, and I know there's some work and some open issues around that, but they, I believe they did get that working. And um, so, yeah, <laughs> and that, that's the power of kind of the Windows container part of it is you have these old applications that are using these, these things that um, you, you typically aren't thinking about when you're building a you know cloud native application, uh, but you can still you know leverage a lot of that uh, old, that functionality um, and move it into Kubernetes, and then you know kind of move on to that journey of uh, modernizing your applications. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think about that a lot as well because you know just going X amount of years ago, you know when I first started out my career, I was in the help desk space, and then I was in the sysadmin space for a little bit, and you know, that was always a huge challenge. Like the huge challenge was always, okay, we need, you know, uh, virtualization, right? Whether we're using Hyper-V, whether you're, we're using ESXi, and then we need to figure out, okay, you know, how much space do we have? How many print servers can we have? We have five, six, seven different sites. So maybe we need a domain controller on each of those, you know, whatever the case may be. And like you said, in, in today's world, we don't really see that all that much because like, because it's not sexy, right? Like nobody's like blogging about print servers anymore. <laughs> but, but the reality is, is that for or, all organizations that have some type of footprint where they have an office, which is a lot still, right? Even, even after the pandemic and stuff, like people are going back to work, there are still offices engineers, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, in on the IT help desk, whether it's uh, sysadmins, whatever the case may be, they still have these problems and, you know, they can ultimately move out of having those certain problems with things like Windows containers to be able to manage the enterprise, right? Because even in my opinion, still Microsoft is the, you know, I hopefully I don't get in trouble for this. Microsoft is still the like the leader from an enterprise perspective, right? Like when you're thinking about Active Directory, when you're thinking about things like running the office, when you're thinking about, you know, Windows running on laptops, like there's still a lot of Microsoft and still a lot of Windows in environments, even if the entire cloud is in AWS. So I think that a lot of uh, uh, engineers, sysadmins, et cetera, still have those like smaller problem, well, not smaller, they're not small, but those problems that we don't typically think about in today's world, because, you know, where a lot of people are at that are working with Kubernetes, you know, like all of us on the call, we're at a, at a higher level, right? Like we're solving different problems. We're not solving those problems anymore. Maybe we did at some point, but we aren't anymore. And because of that, we aren't thinking about it, right? Like we're higher up the stack. And because of that, you know, those, those smaller problems, I feel like can kind of get pushed under the rug a little bit, but you know, which is why I always want to talk about it. Cause I think that, uh, something like windows containers and just Kubernetes in general, I think that it can solve a lot of problems by, you know, orchestrating smaller footprints versus having to worry about, you know, servers in a, in a, uh, in a closet where the water is for the company. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, totally. And we've, we've seen some like lots of requests. And I, I will say that um, like we've got folks at Microsoft who are interested in hearing if there are things that don't work in a container, like trying to figure out how to get them to work in a container. Um, I won't say that we can always kind of make that happen, but we've had requests for having like DCOM servers run in containers, um, MSMQ, uh, all, all of that stuff. Um, and so and we do try to take that, that seriously. Um, 
then the best way, if there, if anybody who's listening has any requests, is um, probably to get on the Kubernetes Slack channel. And um, there's a channel for SIG Windows. You post in there. Um, somebody's usually going to pick that up and route it to the right people. Um, but yeah, we've, we've, we see requests like that all of the time. Uh, and you're right. Cool. It's not usually like buzzworthy. You're not going to see that on like other pod- podcasts or anything. But <laughs> it is a very real, real situation. Yeah, um, I, I was just going to say, like, I think, you know, we are in the Kubernetes ecosystem, things are moving fast, and it, it, it creates a little bit of a bubble a little bit. Um, and I think there's a lot of developers out there that are not working on the latest and greatest things. And they are just keeping the lights on and doing really great work and hard work. Um, and we don't talk about that as often. And that's where, like, the Windows Server containers really kind of come into play is, like, there's a lot of folks who have a lot of .NET apps out there, um, and they are trying to figure out how to, you know, stay on top of the latest and greatest and move things in that direction. Um, and yeah, so there, there's just a lot out there that we don't talk about on a day-to-day basis in, um, in some of the various circles that we're in. So, yeah, no, I totally agree. I always, I always find the conversation funny when you know the uh, the topic comes up as of like, oh, are we going to be able to move legacy out at some point and yada, yada. And, you know, the ironic part is no, because in 10 years from now, what we're doing right now is going to be legacy. So like, there's always going to be something from a legacy standpoint that needs to be managed, that needs to be controlled, that needs to continue to still be built upon because organizations are still using it. You know, even going to, you know, from a finance perspective that, you know, we're still running mainframes. In, in a lot of banks and a lot of institutions like that. So, you know, even, you know, Kubernetes comes into play there. Like, I believe I, I saw something pretty recently of Kubernetes running on mainframes and stuff like that. And so it's like, there, yeah, so I, 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 I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere. Either that or I was dreaming it. I don't know. Maybe look it up, everybody who's listening. <laughs> but I think um, in telco backends and that sort of thing, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So it's, you know, I think that the conversations of what's truly happening in production environments are super crucial because, you know, like I said, we read a lot of stuff, you know, from from a, you know, we see stuff on LinkedIn, we see stuff on Twitter, we see stuff wherever, you know, whatever social media platform people are on, we see different blogs, we see YouTube, we don't see people talking about this stuff like, oh, hey, how do you run Active Directory on a container, or how do you run a print server? But the reality is, is that it's still very, very important in a lot of organizations. So, uh, one thing that I wanted to talk about as well is um, the the SIG for Windows. Now, what it, what does that kind of entail? Like, is it you know a lot of people from Microsoft? Is it a lot of people from you know various other organizations as well? Or you know, is it, is it primarily Microsoft folks? Just quickly define SIG. So. Uh, a SIG is a is a thing inside Kubernetes, and it's a special interest group. Um, and so Kubernetes is a massive project, and is uh, the, one of the ways that they manage the complexity is to break that down into sub-projects. So uh, there are special interest groups for pretty much everything, from networking to applications to storage. Uh, and when we say SIG Windows, we're, we're referring to the Windows special interest group. Uh, and so it's uh, part of the Kubernetes community, uh, and it's really community focused. Um, so we have all sorts of folks um, from various companies to private individuals who are in the SIG, and they're contributing in various ways to improve things related to Windows and Kubernetes. 
Um, and so that can be anything from improving docs to um, contributing code to the uh, Kubernetes projects, uh, all, all the way to just answering questions inside the community's uh, SIG Slack channel. Um, and so that's that's kind of where we hang out the most is um, Kubernetes has a Slack. Anybody can join. You can go to uh, the Kubernetes community page to find the link. I forget it off the top of my head. Um, but uh, once you join, and then you can kind of find the SIG that you're interested in and uh, join the Slack community and just say hi. Everybody's super friendly and welcoming. Um, ask questions, um, mostly mostly technical questions about, you know, how does something work in, in Kubernetes? Um, or, I, hey, this isn't working quite right. You know, they troubleshoot this type of thing. Um, but yeah, there's we have uh, pretty much every major company um, out there is is involved in the SIG, um, and then we also have uh, weekly meetings. So every Tuesday at nine thirty Pacific, um, we have a SIG Windows community meeting, and everybody's welcome to join that. It's on Zoom, um, and there's an open agenda. You can add your item there. Uh, and then we just talk through various things that everybody's working on at, at a given time. Um, and uh, yeah, Mark, do you want to add anything? Yeah, well, one thing I'll add is that uh, the the SIG Windows is more of a like a horizontal SIG. So there are some SIGs like networking which really focus deep dive or like on uh, networking and kind of go vertical in Kubernetes everywhere from what the you know the internal APIs look like to how it's exposed to the users and things like that. For Windows, um, we're more horizontal. So there is a lot of play, like it's always, okay, we want to do this in Windows or Linux is implementing this functionality. How do we get that to work on um, on Windows too? So um, because of that, we uh, really benefit from having a very wide um, kind of set of uh, people with different uh, experiences in, in this SIG too. So, and it, it does help to have a little bit of overlap of knowledge with Windows to understand how things work and then try and implement it too. But um, yeah, if, if, if like we, we see like people from like, we regularly hop into like the SIG network um, discussions, SIG storage discussions and anything like that. So um, I think it's probably a bit easier to start contributing in SIG windows because of that. It's like, if you know how things work in windows and you have some, a little bit of specialized knowledge in any of these areas that that's always uh, very welcome to have too. Very yeah, cool. That's um, that's one of my favorite things about SIG Windows. Uh, like, um, it, you know, it's we, we've talked about how it's kind of doing some of the older stuff, but I've been able to go from deep dives on networking to storage to playing with cluster API, like cluster API, um, to doing things in the API server to doing things on on uh, Kubelet. And you just get to play in all these different areas and learn all these different things. Um, it's been a really um, Great experience for me from that perspective. So, um, if if anybody's out there and looking to get con to, to contribute, we um, are, we have uh, a pretty small, tight knit community, and well, would love to have you join us and um, have lots of lots and lots of things to do. So. Very very cool. Yeah, I would say that that's super important for you know anybody that wants to contribute. Uh, especially in a community that, you know, it's very open, right? It's a little bit smaller, so you don't feel like you're walking into a thousand plus people and you're like, where do I go here? So that's really cool. Awesome. So I have uh, two more Windows container-based questions for you, and then I'll ask one Kubernetes question that we'll go ahead and we'll wrap up. Now, the first thing is, 
Uh, for Windows containers, it is, if I'm not mistaken, Windows Server 2016 and above, right? Yeah, Windows Server containers uh, first introduced the Windows Server 2022 in Kubernetes. Kubernetes Windows Server containers went generally available in Kubernetes version 114, and that supported Windows Server 2019. Nice. Um, we do do verification with all, all of the, like, one of the things that Sig Windows also maintains is all of the, the test passes for the Kubernetes. Um, for Kubernetes workloads running on Windows, and we do run all of those on both Windows Server 2019 and 2022. And we did support SAC releases of, well, those were a thing, but stopped since those are discontinued. Got it. Okay, cool. Perfect. And one more question around it. Is there a specific container runtime that Windows containers need? Is it is it like just container D or is it just... So... The big one, Docker, especially Docker Enterprise Edition, does work with um, with containers and, and Kubernetes. I'm not sure how technical you'd like me to, me to go into here, too, but there are some benefits of running container D, um, which is the other the big one. Um, so internally, there's two kind of versioned versions of this host compute system, which is really what it's kind of the run C equivalent for people who are in the Linux space of of Windows, this is what actually starts the container at the kind of the OS level. And the the Docker implementations today are based on um, this the, the V1 schema of that API. And there are some functionality that's only available in the V2 APIs that um, really like you, you benefit from, from running containers. And container D is leveraging that. Now, I'm not sure if this has landed yet or not, but my understanding is there's um, a desire to have it so that when you install things like uh, Enterprise, uh, Docker Enterprise Edition um, or the Marantis Container Runtime now, you'll like you'll it's kind of a, a layered approach. So you get like the Docker CLIs and everything, and then that's running Container D under the hood and talking to that. So you get both of those benefits. Um, but I don't believe like Docker Desktop and things like that have that yet. So it really kind of depends on what you want um probably way too detailed to go into here too but for general cases um docker docker's fine for kind of some more specialized cases you want container d um and it really just depends on do you want the latest and greatest but something that's maintained by an open source community or do you want something that's you know a little bit more tried and true but potentially have to pay for it for got example. it yeah that makes sense and then i imagine i mean i this is obvious right but i'm just going to put the words out there wherever you can use Windows worker nodes, whatever runtime is there is what's supported. So like an AKS, it's CRIO. That means, you know, Windows containers uh, can can uh, communicate with CRIO from a runtime perspective. So like I would say like that, that means anywhere that your your uh, Windows worker nodes are running, it doesn't really matter in terms of the runtime because like it, it will be supported regardless, right? Actually, so Cryo is only Linux, um, but... What, what, oh, what so you it's said a separate runtime. Yeah, Cryo is a separate runtime that um, is also open source, but I believe it's mainly managed by, um, it started out of Red Hat. That is Linux only right now. Um, but what you said is absolutely correct. If you're going with a managed Kubernetes service, um, like like AKS, like GKE, like Red Hat OpenShift, like that, um, they completely abstract the, you know, the container runtime from you. And yeah, the support is... Uh, bundled with whatever your the services you're getting with that too. Got it. Okay. So sorry, I gotta I gotta ask one more thing. I and I apologize if you uh, already answered this because I believe you may have, but I just want to make sure. So 
you know, in, in, in every Kubernetes environment, right? Like Kubernetes doesn't know how to start, stop, et cetera, containers, all that's done re via the container runtime. Now on a Kubernetes cluster, you typically have, you know, whatever container runtime running container D, um, you know, uh, CRIO, you can, Docker no more because that's been deprecated. So if you have CRIO running, right. For like, let's say your Linux worker nodes, does that mean there's a second container runtime running for the windows worker nodes? Yeah, so each um, each node can have its own runtime, and the runtime right. is kind of isolated to that node. Um, and so if you're running all Linux, you probably want to have the same runtime running across all of those nodes, but you technically could have a mix of uh, Cryo and Containerd and Docker or something like that. Um, for Windows, so and so for Windows, yeah, it's the same thing. It's a little separated. So you could be running container D on the Windows node and cryo on the, the Linux node um, and because it's kind of isolated to the node. And the, the API, the, the, the way that Kubernetes talks is through the kubelet uh, and the API server. And so um, you're, you're like, it, it doesn't really know what the runtime is underneath. Um, and that, that's kind of the whole uh, idea of the uh, container runtime interface, the cry interface. Um, and so yeah, so so you can have a mix there. Typically, you're going to probably want to have you know a similarity between those. But from a, from a Windows and Linux perspective, they can be completely different because they're 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 using totally different run like um, right. systems and system calls and all that stuff. Um, and so yeah, like uh, we typically are running in AKS. I think we run uh, Containerd uh, for the Windows nodes at this point, and um, I think it's Containerd on the Linux side as well. Got it. Okay, cool. Totally makes sense. Now, one more question for for both of you, actually, just just out of uh, pure curiosity. So, obviously, the the Kubernetes realm right now is well, it'll, and it will continue to be incredibly vast. Like there is, uh, ar arguably, I like the I like the. This is a little bit buzzwordy, but I like the um, you know, it's like a data center, right? Like your your Kubernetes cluster is like a data center. You have your networking, you have your storage, you have your uh, you have your development, you have your infrastructure pieces, your operating system pieces. Do you think that with how vast it is, it's too much for one, let's say one person to be able to uh, manage all of it? Like, do you think that it should be split up into some high velocity teams? So like, for example, let's say you have, you know, six people on your team, two people are, are dev focused, two people are ops focused, two people are security focused, and then they kind of split the workload in terms of what needs to happen in the Kubernetes cluster. I'll say at least, and from my experience, um, yeah, your the Kubernetes ecosystem is extremely vast, and it is extremely complicated. Um, it even being familiar with like a lot of stuff in Windows, it took me many months to kind of ramp up and get to a point where I feel like I mostly kind of understand what's what's going on and what all of the moving pieces are. Um, so I think that that all really depends on experience. I think for people who are coming into this with no Kubernetes experience. Um, expect to take you know three to six months just to get your head around all the concepts and play around with things make mistakes um do things too um and that's with or without windows nodes in there um and then but one of the benefits of kubernetes is i think it's really designed to make it very streamlined to manage very large deployments too so i think you'll probably see a little bit of a a, a spectrum and a shift as um, if there's a lot of people who are very new to Kubernetes, even if they have many years of, you know, um, operations backgrounds too, um, you'll probably want a small team of people to share learnings and um, and do that with. But as um, they mature, mature in that journey, you could probably scale down 
that, but um, I'd probably always recommend at least a couple of people, um, you know, coverage it. And I think one of the other things too, not only is it very vast, it's very high velocity too. So um, that's actually one of the big complaints that we've seen with a lot of users, especially people who are uh, using kind of Windows, who kind of expect, you know, a, a very stable platform is that there's there's three releases uh, a year now, and there's like big functionality uh, coming in all the time. There's breaking changes, not not so often anymore too, but um, that's coming in. It does take a lot of, um, it can take a lot of effort just to stay on top of, you know, Kubernetes, um, the, 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 the release cadence and making sure you're patched and everything too. Makes sense. James, what do you think? Yeah, um, I, I think I agree with what Mark said there. Um, I, I think when you see the the managed uh, like cloud providers give taking away the complexity of, of having to manage the control plane, it gets a little bit like simpler from that perspective. You no longer have to know the internals of etcd or how the API server captures things and do, does all of those things. You still get exposed to that in some capacity, but I think over time, we're going to see more and more of that, that type of complexity get removed through the cloud providers. Um, but right now, you still have, uh, you still get exposed to that. Um, if you're if you're building your own controller uh, to implement like a, your own custom resource or something like that, um, you still need to know how the the watches work on the API server and what's happening behind the scenes because you're going to get bit by that sometime. <laughs> uh, and so, like, uh, yeah, I think from that perspective, um, you do need to know the, those types of things. And um, one of the biggest things I see folks run into is networking. Um, uh, if if you don't have a ton of networking experience, um, it, you're probably going to want to find somebody that can help you out in that in that regards because um, the the networking can get complex pretty quickly uh, in a in a large cluster. So. Yeah, and and you brought up uh, something that was pretty important. It will, all, all everything you said was important, but one of the things that stood out was you know the fact that at some point a lot of this is going to get abstracted away from us, and I feel like we're kind of even seeing that right now. Uh, we're seeing that with you know ACI bursting with the virtual cubelet. If you're using AKS, we're seeing you know Fargate profiles for EKS. We're seeing, you know, the control planes were obviously abstracted away from us with these managed Kubernetes services, but we're also seeing it from a worker node perspective too. So at some point, we're going to reach a point where it's just, you're just kind of worried about the API and that's it, like what you're doing from a from a, a, a programmatic perspective, really. So one more thing, I'm sorry, I, I know I've been saying, I said this like 50 times, no, okay. one, one more question, because I'm, I'm super curious, because like I said, I haven't done really much with Windows containers, clearly. Um, so let's say like from a, from a managed Kubernetes service perspective, you're using AKS, you're using EKS, uh, you know, the control plane's abstracted away from you. So like you obviously don't even, well, you can know, like technically I, I believe you can still change the uh, container runtimes if you want to, but it's like, you need to have a compelling reason to do it if you're going to do it. But like, let's say you're running something on prem, right? So let's say you're bootstrapping a couple of VMs with, with kubeadm or whatever the case may be. Now, when you're doing that on whatever nodes are going to be the control planes, you're still installing a container runtime, whether that's CRIO, whether it's container D, whatever you're using to get that up and running. So let's say in that scenario, you know, I'm, I'm bootstrapping with kubeadm. I got two control planes. I got three, uh, I got three worker nodes, one of those worker nodes or four worker nodes, actually two of them will, will be uh, windows nodes. If I'm installing, you know, CRIO on the control plane, 
well, I ha I, I'm not going to have any conflict if I'm installing a separate runtime on the Windows worker nodes, right? Like it won't, like it doesn't need anything specific. Like it doesn't need a specific runtime or whatever the case may be. I know it doesn't matter because you can install, you know, however many you want on each worker node and each control plane. But I was just curious from that perspective. No, um, that, that shouldn't be a difference. Um, the one thing you would want to make sure you're doing is, is the CNI is installed is the same across the entire cluster. Like you wouldn't want to mix and match uh, flannel and calico or something like that. Um, you you want to use that um, CN, that CNI provider across your entire cluster, um, just so you have consistent networking. Um, Got it. Okay, and and <laughs> swear one more. <laughs> so so uh, just speaking of networking, really quick, it just popped up. So let's say you're doing something like um, you know you're using. Uh, Cilium uh, with eBPF, right? So like you're completely removing QProx if you wanted to do that. that, that will, will that still work like with, with Windows worker nodes or do, or do Windows worker nodes require QProxy or any of those like underlying components that you know of from a networking perspective? So we don't support Cilium from a Windows perspective right now. Uh, it's using eBPF. Uh, eBPF is a uh, Linux first technology. Um, we there is actually a project out there that's being uh, worked on called uh, Windows eBPF, oh, nice. uh, and uh, so they are working towards support for Cilium. They have a demo of using some of uh, Cilium's uh, load balancers and types those types of things that they've built in um, to to prove that out. Um, but right now, you would probably if you're using eBPF on the the Linux side, you probably wouldn't be able to mix and match with Windows. I actually don't know the answer to that totally clearly. Um, but uh, yeah, right now you need QProxy. Um, but I, I did start experimenting um, and I did this and I brought it to the SIG Windows uh, community a couple months ago. Um, I did like a little prototype of using this Windows eBPF program to uh, start to program the Windows kernel using eBPF. Which so eventually maybe that that's something that could happen. It's very far out for, for right now, um, but there is work happening in that space, um, which is pretty exciting. Um, you know, one one of the things we didn't really talk about is all the the innovations that Mark has been working on for um, for Windows and, and the Kubernetes ecosystem. But um, you know, we've brought things like uh, uh, Linux had uh, privileged containers, um, and we created something called host process containers, which is very similar to that. Um, and it gives you the ability to do some of the things that you just couldn't do on a Windows node uh, with Linux. Um, and so it, there's a lot of exciting things that we've been uh, working on um, from a Windows perspective um, that help kind of level that playing field across uh, Windows and Linux. Yeah, this is, I, I think this is super important for everybody to understand that's listening. And, and that's why I wanted to ask these questions in this way, because as much like, as much abstraction as there is, there is always going to be subtle differences like that. So like perfect example, right? With the privileged containers. Uh, if you look at like, you know, the all wasp top 10 for Kubernetes or something like that. Um, and I don't know if it's for, I think it's for the CIS benchmarks as, as well, actually, now that I think about it. They talk about privileged containers, which is, you know, a best practice, but they don't talk about the Windows version. So there's there's definitely like a disconnect, I would say, right? But, you know, obviously what you guys are doing, hopefully, well, and I can already see it, right, just based on this conversation, abstracting that away uh, as, as much as possible, right? Because 
at the end of the day, like I think people don't want to do like two or three or five different things. Right. And they obviously want to be able to follow a best practice, but it's hard to follow the best practice. If there's still this, like this wall between windows and Linux, like that's been there for X amount of years. Right. And, and we're, 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 you know, the, the community is quickly seeing like this, it's being abstracted away, but there are still the subtle differences. So, you know, uh, to pretty much to, to your guys point, right. Make sure if, if, and this is for the listeners, right. Make sure that if you're implementing windows, uh, windows worker nodes that, you know, you're, you're under, you understand these subtle differences. And speaking of these subtle differences, is there, um, some type of like KB or something like that, where it says like, you know, um, I guess like the differences kind of, so like, for example, like, you know, uh, uh, can, uh privileged containers results to this and windows containers. Like, is there some type of like mapping there that people can go and take a look at to understand if they haven't used windows containers? Well, I'll answer that in a second, but let me back up a little bit and give a little bit of maybe some context to this too. But um, yeah, absolutely. What you said is is, is correct. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, Windows containers went GA or generally available in Kubernetes 114. So that means there was 14 releases of Kubernetes where it was Linux only or it was in like alpha or beta. Um, after that, we got a lot of questions or people would pop up and say, oh, I didn't know, you know, Kubernetes can run Windows containers. Um, we've seen that shift a lot in the past um, couple of years. And now it's like people don't say, oh, can Kubernetes run Windows containers? They say, is this specific functionality supported in Windows um, and for Windows containers running in Kubernetes? Um, so that we, we have seen that shift both in the Kubernetes community internally with the developers, with the people who are using it, and, um, and people who are writing about it too. Um, so I do hope that that'll continue to change and all of these best practices will account for windows um eventually and i for everything indicates that that's the direction that that we're going um now to answer your specific question about is there a difference between what works on windows and not today there is not for a long time the main kubernetes documentation had essentially one big article that was here's how to do things in windows and here's the differences for everything um here's what works, here's what doesn't work, and here's like the Windows-only functionality. We've gotten a lot of feedback, um, especially as it's matured, that that wasn't necessarily the best um, way to structure the docs, especially from the docs, um, the docs team. So we've worked on splitting that out because a lot of times what would happen is somebody would go and look like, oh, how do I configure my DNS settings for these pods? And then they'd, they'd land on the DNS page and it wouldn't say anything about Windows. Um, and then they need to do another search if, and know to look for a Windows-specific page. So um, a little while ago, we did a big effort in the Kubernetes documentation to break that up. And now it's like, so if there are differences between how things like DNS works, it's going to be on the DNS page on um, the main Kubernetes documentation. Um, and we've we've seen we've thought that that's been a benefit to users um always welcome for feedback here um but i think it it helps it has helped to raise awareness so yes this this works on windows and it is a little bit more of the expectation that if this page is has documentation about something and doesn't say something about windows it means it should work exactly the same um with that too awesome yeah i think that's super helpful oh sorry go ahead mark yeah, one other thing that I want to uh, kind of call out here, especially to the, to the audience, is um, I know like my expertise and James' expertise is mostly in getting Windows containers running in Kubernetes. But for anybody who's new to containerizing Windows container applications, 
don't assume that Kubernetes is always going to be your final destination. Um, like step one is always get your app running in a container. And that can be like a single container that you're just running with Docker desktop. Um, or, I mean, potentially things, you know, like, uh, well, yeah, if, if you want to containerize your apps, you, you can do that too. Um, but don't dive headfirst into Kubernetes if you don't have experience with Kubernetes necessarily. It, it could can cause some extra frustration. First, get your app running as you want in, um, in containers. And then if you want things like being able to, you know, like scale out, burst out, have complex networking policies, manage all of your containers in one cluster, that's when you start looking at Kubernetes. Um, I think sometimes people jump right to Kubernetes and that's probably, that's not always necessary and can cause some friction. Yep. Totally, totally agree. I think funny enough, uh, I, I had that question so much of like, you know, how do I get into Kubernetes? Uh, and and I, I ended up writing a blog about it that was like 3,000 words or something with all the prerequisites, like operating systems, infrastructure, networking, like programming. Like there's there's so many different prerequisites that you need. Um, and then even, you know, I, I, you know, get the, well, let's say I want to, you know, figure it out in four or five months or something like that. You know, what's like a quick way? And I always say, well, first, you know, pick a programming language, go through, you know, whatever beginner course. Next, you know, understand how to containerize it, then figure out how to throw it into Kubernetes because Kubernetes doesn't necessarily care about the container. Like it just knows, hey, I need to orchestrate this thing. Hey, I need to manage it. Like it doesn't doesn't know how to stop them. It doesn't know how to start them. It just knows I have this thing I need to orchestrate and I need to keep it up and running. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Completely agree with you. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, Funny enough, I think this has been the longest episode we've had on this podcast so far because I asked a million questions. So then, so this was really awesome. Um, now, where can everybody find you? I don't know if you guys have like books or if you guys do a blog or, or videos or anything like that. Um, I think the I, I I don't really do a blog. I know James does. You can plug that next. Um, but the easiest way to find me is probably in the the Kubernetes Slack channel. Um, so it, you can search for Kubernetes Slack, and there's a way to invite yourself. Um, and you just put in your email address and you'll get an invite. And then once you're in there, um, there's, there's tons of different Slack channels, but, um, each special interest group has a, has a Slack channel. It's like hashtag SIG hyphen, whatever it is. Um, you can find me and SIG windows pretty much all the time. Awesome. Cool. How about you, James? Yeah, you can find me there. Um, I do have a blog. It's not, uh, uh, I don't write to it as often as I used to, uh, but it's jamesturnot.com. Uh, I am on Twitter, uh, Aspen Wilder. And um, yeah, you can find me on GitHub as well. So uh, we're, we're out there. We're, we're ready to answer your questions and uh, really appreciate you having us on today. Awesome, guys. Yeah, thank thank you, you so much. Mike. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And thank you guys for coming on. I think this was super beneficial. Uh, you know, like I said, we don't hear a lot about Windows containers, just in the general. So it's really good to have you guys on because I do think that it's a big piece of the Kubernetes puzzle, especially for the enterprise. So, uh, you know, people definitely need to start thinking about it and start learning about it. So thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And thank you everybody for listening.